Man, I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. We are in part six of a series that we've titled, Are You Happy? And I know for some of us, this is your first time with us. You have no idea what's going on. Others of you, you've been here for a while. And you're a little acclimated to this idea that we've been talking about, about a life that is settled in Jesus so much so that it is not this circumstantial happiness that we're talking about, but a life that is not moved by good days or bad days, but it's constant and it's steady and it's, it's founded and rooted and grounded in something much deeper than a circumstantial happiness. And I believe that that is a life that God has designed for us to have. It's the life that Jesus wants for you to have. And I believe that it's well within reach and all we have to do is say yes to it. You know, over the course of the series, we've got been talking about a few different things that keep us from happiness. And tonight, I want to anchor down into an idea that is actually the heart and soul of this entire series. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. And if you can't tell, it's written to some Hebrews. Yeah? My daughter, she tells me uh, the other day, she asked me, do you know how Moses brews his coffee or makes his coffee? Sorry, I ruined the joke. He brews it. Yeah, there it is. Bad dad joke. First one of the night. Awesome. Killed that one. Good job, Blake. All right. We're in Hebrews starting in chapter 6. Maybe I'll try it again on the back half. Maybe it'll go better, okay? Hebrews chapter 6 starting in verse 11. If you have a Bible, if you have a cell phone, please turn there. Everybody there? You already made it? If not, tell me hold up, okay? I respect your hold up. Okay, let me give you a little context as to this book. You're going to hear me say a familiar phrase tonight. Normally when we talk about a book of the Bible, I will name the author. This is not one of those nights because the author of Hebrews is unknown. That a lot of smart people disagree with who is the author of Hebrews. So tonight if you hear I, me say the writer of Hebrews or the author of this book, that's because I don't know who it is. And guess what? Not just me. Everybody is kind of has different opinions about it. But we do know this. He is writing to a group of people who are Jewish believers in the New Testament church. So if we know who he's talking to, we can kind of get an idea of something that he's going to talk about. And if you're not there, we're leaving you, okay? Verse 11, chapter 6. Let's get into it. It says, And we desire each one of you, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, cross my heart, hope to die, saying, surely I'll bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's good, huh? Real good. 
I love Hebrews 6, man. It's beautiful. We're going to be anchored in that tonight. And before we jump into that, I want you to do one more thing for me. I want you to touch your neighbor one last time. And I want you to give him the title of my talk. And I might change this title later on, but right now I need you to touch your neighbor and say, hey, neighbor. It's time to get anchored. It's time to get anchored. A few years ago, uh, it, it seems like a few years ago is now more like 10 years ago. Um, but a few years ago, I was living in San Francisco, California, and it was uh, a cool time in my life. I was 23, and I was, I was living out there, and I was working at a ministry, interning a ministry called City Impact. And what we did is we spent most of our time uh, dealing with just people in the inner city of San Francisco, just trying to help, working a rescue mission, feeding homeless, and just really trying to give people hope of Jesus, right? And on the weekend, like any normal person that's not from California, my one thing that I wanted to do was go surfing. I had a friend, his name was Jason, he was a pastor in the area, and he lived about an hour out of San Francisco, and he was really good to me, him and his family uh, would always ask me over, just, hey, come over to the house, and I didn't have a car at the time, so I'd be like, are we going to come pick me up, or what are we going to do here? And so what he would do is he would come and he'd pick me up and he'd say, hey, bro, we're going surfing today. And for me, I was, I was ecstatic. I'm like, yo, let's go. I'm down right now. Can we go right now? I'm going right now. And he's like, I got you, bro. Let's make it happen. And on this particular day, actually my first day that I've ever went surfing ever in my life, he took me to a place um, kind of out, out a little further than I was normally used to when going to the beach in San Francisco. We went to a place called Half Moon Bay. And it, the spot specifically that he brought me to is about 500 yards away from the biggest surf break in North America, okay? I remember getting in the car, and I remember talking to him, and he's like, hey, bro, are you sure you're ready for today? And, you know, I'm from Texas. I, I mean, I'm from, I'm from Nacogdoches, Texas, to be specific. And for me, a wave that is of normal height is about four feet, and that's huge, okay? That's the biggest one I've ever seen. Galveston, you know, there's going to be some trash floating towards you. You know, like I know what I'm getting myself into. But on this day in particular, I had no idea what was waiting for me. And I'm in the car, and I'm acting real hard, like, I'm an athlete, bro. I'm ready for I'm born for this. Ain't nothing but some water. And then he started telling me some things. And I was getting a little more nervous, but I had to act hard on the outside. He was telling me that this place in particular is in the Red Triangle. And I was like, what's the Red Triangle? He says, this is where great white sharks are the most prevalent in North America. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Note to self. Don't get eaten. Okay. That was my first thing. And he said, but I wouldn't be so worried about the sharks. I'd be more worried about the waves. And at the time, I was like, bro, a four-foot wave ain't going to do nothing to me. I'm fine. I, I'm a lifeguard before. I was in shape. You know, I had it in me where I was like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be all right. And he said, hey, man, it's going to be different than what you expect. And we get out the car, and I'm, I'm sitting there in the parking lot. And he's like, hey, bro, look over there. And I, and I look, and I'm like, yeah, what is that? Is that a, like, I was like, is that like a hill, like a mountain? He's like. Nah, bro, that ain't no hill. That's, that's a wave. I said, a what? He said, yeah, that's Mavericks. And I was like, we going over there? Are you serious? And I'm in my mind like, I'm going to die-die if I go out there, okay? Like, I'm going to be shark bait, ooh-ah-ha. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, it's over. 
what? This thing is 70 foot tall. I'm not playing games. It's huge. And I was like, why would you do this to me? He goes, nah, bro, I'm just playing. We're going over there. And I, I tell you, I had the, almost a panic attack thinking about it. But the place he, he brought me was no better. It was no better. How about 70 to about 10 feet is, is, is still huge. It's really big, all right? And he's talking to me. He's giving me the rundown. He's like, hey, man, I just want you to be prepared for what we're about to get into because I'm trusting that you really are what an athlete that you say that you are. And I'm, I'm, I'm second-guessing everything I had said in the car. I was like, I should have been like, nah, bro, I don't really know. I'm kind of scared. I don't really know how to feel about this. But I was, I was so confident. I was like, I got to keep my macho bravado going. Like, I'm a top G. I got to keep this thing going. You know what I'm saying? And so I get my wetsuit on, and I get my board, and I'm walking down. And he's like, hey, bro, we're not going where everyone else is going. We're going to a specific spot that you can only get to by climbing this uh, rock face this cliff and I'm already like this guy's gonna kill me <laughs> if my life is over I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna tell my mama I died like you know like it's just like that's my whole thing I'm thinking about and so we get there and I, we're climbing down this rock face and I've got the board strapped to my ankle and I'm holding on to it and I'm just like walking down and he tells me last minute he goes hey bro are you sure that you know what you're doing and I'm like yeah, kind of, no, okay, no, I don't know what I'm doing. I need a rundown right now. And I'm like hanging on to the cliff, right? And he says, hey, bro, everything about surfing, I can teach you out there. What you need to know right now is that the moment that you hit that water, you need to paddle. And so I was like, okay, ain't nothing but doggy paddling. I got that. I've been, I've been in swim lessons my whole life. I can make that happen. I got it. And so... One thing after another, you know, led to where I was about to jump into, and I'm looking down, and I'm trying to time the wave so I'm not immediately, like, pulled and hit up against the cliff face and the rocks and actually die. I time it, and I jump out, and, and my first mistake was that I did not recognize or even anticipate how cold that water was going to be. I should have breathed different coming in because I hit that water, and I'm like, <gasps> And not only that, my hands are immediately frozen. And I was like, bro, what? why is the water cold? It's California. What's I had no idea the Pacific Ocean was cold. That's how, that's how like, rookie I was in this moment. And so I get in, and I'm, I'm paddling. And I just hear him, paddle, 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 bro, paddle. You better book it, paddle. And, bro, I'm on that wave. I'm just like. <laughs> and here's the worst part about it. Because it's not as if you're, like, paddling and you don't see anything I'm paddling and this mountain of water is starting to like <laughs> and I get to this moment and it is as if the entire ocean fell on my face and I <laughs> to say that it was a hard time I was underwater for what felt like 10 minutes okay the way that my lungs are set up not built for that and so I get, I get pulled underneath. My board is somewhere else. My leg is getting pulled because it's connected to my leg. My leg's going one way. My body's going another way. And these waves are rolling over me. And by the time that I, like, get my, like, wits about me and start to, like, pat, like swim back up to the top, the next wave is coming. And I'm just getting enough of a little breath, and then I'm back underneath again. And this goes, goes on for about four or five times. Like, this is not like just some like, oh, you had a tough moment. It's like, I'm going to actually die. 
In this moment, I'm saying a prayer like, God, if you can just get me out of this. If you can just get me out of this moment. Mom, I'm thinking about my mom. I'm like, I didn't even tell her. I didn't even text her today. She's going to be so hurt. And in this moment, every bit of gangster that I had in my whole heart, every bit of a, the thug that was in me was like, I'm not going out like this, okay? And so I start to swim, and I grab that board, and I swim out of what they call the impact zone. And I get to this real, like, calm spot right behind it. And my boy Jason just sit on his board like, bro, I was wondering when you're going to make it out here. And I was like, you weren't going to come get me? Like, <laughs> you're just going to let me die? He goes, you would have washed up sooner or later. I would have, you know, figured it out. <laughs> but I'm out there, and I'm, I'm huffing and puffing like the big bad wolf. Like, I can't breathe. I got asthma, and I didn't even know that I had asthma. Like, it's like that, okay? And I'm breathing so hard, and my arms are, like, done. Just, I'm completely tanked. It's over for me. I'm laying on that board just like this. Hand in the water. I don't care if a shark eats me at this point. It just, I just don't care. I'm just, I'm tore up. I can't do this no more. I'm sick of you, Jason, and everybody that look like you. He's all talking in surfer talk. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. I don't really care. And he's like, bro, I'm going to surf if you're going to chill. And I was like, bro, surf all day. I'm going to stay right here. I'm not moving. I'm not going back into that. Are you crazy? And so what happens is over the course of about 10 minutes or so, I'm, I'm catching my breath. I'm, I'm starting to get my, like, my energy back. I'm like, you know what? I made it out here. If, if nothing else, like I made it. I'm starting to feel proud of myself. Some pride swelling up in me. And I hear this voice. It's further away than I expected the first time. And uh, when I was talking to Jason before, I was like, maybe he's down in there. He's on the beach. He's talking to me like, what I hear is, hey, bro, you good? And I'm like, I'm just like, yeah, bro, I'm good. I'm chilling. I'm good. Just breathing, you know, still alive. Thank you, Jesus. Almost met him a minute ago. But I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm alive. He goes, hey, bro, you good? Like, yeah, I'm good. And the next thing I hear is, nah, bro, you're not good. I look up, and when I tell you I was halfway to Hawaii, I was I was gone. I was what felt like a mile away from short. Jason was a dot, and my thought was, oh my God, I'm definitely gonna die now. The sharks <laughs> definitely see me. I'm in a wetsuit, I'm big, I'm looking like a big fat thick juicy seal and I'm, I'm, I'm number one on the food chain okay and so I'm like oh my god I need to I need to like swim back in and I'm, I just rested I'm like how did I get this far out Jason how do I get back bro paddle and when I tell you that it only took a couple of minutes and I was in a place that I never thought that I would be what I found out in that moment later on talking to Jason was that I was in the, uh, the direct path of what they call a rip current or undertow. And what happens is that undertow is actually going to Hawaii, and I'm sitting in the middle of it, okay? And what I found out that moment was is that sometimes if you're not paying attention, you will find yourself in a place that you never expected to be. And I think that while that's a funny story, it's actually a pretty good depiction of what our life often looks like. That we take a breather, we take a moment, and next thing you know, we've drifted into a place that we never thought that we'd be. Deeper into anxiety, 
into depression. Your insecurities are more of a hold on you than you ever expected. And you are looking at this life that we've been talking about, this idea of happiness. And it seems like at one point it was just right here and now it's so far away. That somehow, some way, we have drifted into a place that we've never thought that we'd be. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about a, a life that doesn't drift. I want to talk about living a life so dead set in the dead center of what God has for you that you don't even have the ability to drift any further than what you're paying attention to. I want to talk about being rooted and connected to something that is secure and steadfast and unable to be taken to a place that you are unaware of. Tonight, I want to talk about living a life that refuses to drift. And I believe that if we are going to be people who live those lives, the first thing that we have to do is we have to be people who have an anchor. This book Hebrews is, is written to these group of believers. They're Jewish. And they just left Judaism. Their whole, it's not just their religion, it's their, it's their families, it's their jobs, it's their livelihood. Everything that made them who they were, they've left because they found something in Jesus. And some t- something along the way happened that moved them from a place where their new hope in Jesus was now something that they had drifted very far away from. The writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, We must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That these Jewish believers have faced some difficulty, they've faced some persecution, they've lost jobs, they've lost friendships, They've lost the things that once gave them hope and life, and they had transitioned it into a life of following Jesus, being all in on this thing. And somewhere along the way, they've drifted back to their old way of life that had no life in it. And I think the thing that's funny about this is that oftentimes we think that drifting happens because we've done something wrong. Do you know what all it takes for you to drift? do nothing. You don't have to do anything to drift. Here's why. The thing that you might not know is that there are forces, there are things pulling against your life, trying to remove you and destroy the life that Jesus is trying to give you, that we have an enemy, we talked about it last time, that's dead set on removing any and all life that you have. You have a current pulling you away from your place of hope and life and happiness. And if we don't have an anchor that holds us in the midst of that current, we will find ourselves in a place that we never thought we'd be. We need an anchor. My question for you tonight is, where is your anchor? Where's your anchor? Now, I think for a lot of us, our problem is that not that we don't have an anchor. We don't have hopes. That's what the author calls this this anchor. It's it's our hope, this sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. It's hope. It's something to hold on to. 
It's the hope that you have. It's the faith that you have. It's the life in Jesus that you have. It's something that you've grabbed onto. It's, it's a hope. And I don't think that I'm looking at a room full of people who don't have hope in things. I think I'm looking at a room full of people that might have placed some hope in the wrong thing. That we have some misplaced hopes. And not that they're in bad things. They're just in things that have no ability to hold you when the wind and waves of life come. Some of you, you've placed your hope in a relationship, one that you want or one that you have. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your friendships. Maybe it's in your grades. Maybe it's in the career and the life and the dreams that you have, the hopes that you have for your life. And the reason why we often look like we have lives with no anchor is because those things that we hoped in couldn't keep us. They couldn't hold us when the hard things of life came. When that relationship ended or went a direction that you never thought it was going to go, you wonder, where is my hope? I thought I was, I, was, I was once this happy person, and now I found myself anxious and depressed and afraid alone. I wonder if the reason why we lack stability in our life and that happiness seems like such a fleeting emotion for us is because we have chosen some anchors and we've held on to some hopes that never had the ability to give us life. You know, I think it's easy to find ourselves in that place. And a lot of times like, we don't even realize that that's what we've done until something happens. You know, the way that you can tell if an anchor works or not, you can't tell when things are calm. When life's good, you can't tell if your anchor works or not. Some of you might be in that place in life right now where things are actually going good. You don't feel like you're drifting at all. And you had some hopes and some things that have been going kind of good for you. But an anchor is tested when the wind comes and the waves come. And life starts to drag you into a place, things don't start going the way that you thought. And that is when the anchor is tested. And we've talked a bit about this and what God will often let you go through. And I think that some of us, we have a picture of why God allows suffering and pain and difficulty in our life. We think it's because he doesn't love us. Maybe he's actually trying to show you that the anchor that you have placed your hope in can't hold you. And unless you are hit with some waves and you're buffeted with some storms, you're never going to see that the anchor that you have dug yourself into the ground, the seabed of your life in, it won't hold you until the wind comes. Thank God for difficulty. Thank God for things not working out. Do you want to know why? It would be horrible for things to go great. And then some moment in your life when you have a lot of responsibility, you have a lot of people looking to you to be somebody, whether you're a husband or you're a wife or you're a mother or you lead other people, and your life falls apart because the anchor that you had wasn't really as sure and as steadfast as it should have been. Thank God for early difficulty. Thank God for the wind and the waves. He's showing you that your anchor, anything other than in the person of Jesus, will not hold you. And I know some of you are like, okay, Blake, how do you know that? Well, guess what? I was you, okay? I was you. I was a college student before. I don't, I don't know if you know that or not. I had 
grades and I had tests and I had things I was worried about. I had a career in mind that I want, I want to have this. Not only that, but I was a single person before too. And I was like, oh my God, when I get married, bro, my life's going to be awesome. When I become a dad, life's going to be awesome. When I have a career, life's going to be awesome. When I have a calling and a purpose on my life that I know, that I feel is defined, where I feel like God is working in my life, I have all those things. And guess what? Those things aren't even enough to hold you. There are pastors, there are worship leaders, there are people that lead Bible studies, there are people that lead in the church that don't actually have Jesus as an anchor. Do you realize that? That they have started with Jesus as an anchor and they have really relied on other things and different outcomes to be the thing that they were actually anchored in. And it takes it all falling down for them to realize my hope was never really in Jesus in the first place. It looked like Jesus but the reality is, is that if a life is not centered and held on to the hope in Jesus only, it will fail. And what I mean by Jesus only is Jesus and nothing else good in my life. I'm cool. I'm chilling. If God doesn't do anything else for me but save me and invite me into the life with him and that's it, that's enough. Because a lot of times we make it a lot of different things saying that it's Jesus. Sometimes we make it church. Sometimes we make it a position in church. Sometimes we make it biblical knowledge. Sometimes we even make it our prayer life. But the reality is the only anchor that will hold is Jesus himself. Period. Point blank period. And the reason why a lot of us also feel like this anchor that we try, and I think it's in good intention. That we have Jesus as the hope of our, of our life. We're like, man, I love God. I know a lot of people like feel that way. But yet the anchor's still not holding. And my thing to you is maybe it's not just that you need an anchor. But my second point is maybe your anchor needs something to be anchored to. What is your anchor anchored to? Does that make sense? Do you know how anchor works? An anchor has to go down to the bottom of the seabed. You know what a seabed is? It's the floor. It's the flow, okay? And if it doesn't go down to the floor and hold on to something and dig into something that can hold it, guess what? It's a pretty crappy anchor. An anchor that doesn't even reach is like a, it's just like walking around like, well, I got this anchor. It's not holding on to anything, but it's just there, you know? We have to have an anchor that's deep enough to connect to something immovable you know a lot of anchors won't work depending on what they get put in sometimes anchors get put into sandy bottoms and all they do is when the wind and the waves come it just pulls the sand nothing holding it just pulling it a little slower maybe it's got to be connected to something immovable it's got to be connected to something secure it's about what the anchor is anchored to I love in this text that uh, the author of Hebrews, see, there it is, he, uh, he talks to these Jewish believers in a language that they can understand. And how I know that is, is they talk to this image of the father of Israel, the father of the Hebrew people, Abraham. Anybody grew up in church? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons have father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. 
So let's just, yeah, 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 okay, a couple people grew up in church, okay. He, he talks about this, this moment, this promise that Abraham had with God. I want to redirect quick. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. And if you don't know your Bible, you have no idea that this is talking about Genesis chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 15 while I give y'all a little bit of opportunity. Can I teach a little bit while I'm preaching? Is that okay? Let me preach a little bit, or teach a little bit before I preach a little bit. Sound good? Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'm going to give y'all a second to get there. It's really helpful because... Not only does this give some context and some light, and it actually makes this something that has legs on it. It actually makes sense. A lot of times we, we talk churchisms and theology, and it doesn't ever really hit practicality. Y'all with me? I, the author of this is trying to get the reader to understand. I'm not talking about some fake, oh, you need Jesus as an anchor, and it doesn't do nothing. I'm talking about something that's serious, okay? That's what he's trying to prove by bringing up this image. Verse 1 of chapter 15, just some context. Abraham, in this moment, he's, uh, he's already had a moment with God. Abraham himself is a man of faith. He know, we know this. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. He says, hey, leave your father, your mother, your whole household, and go to a land that I will show you. Faith. All right. Leaves. Leaves everything. Leaves his whole life. Do you know how else I know that Abraham is like about that life? Y'all want to know? It's a little graphic. I'm sorry. This man, Abraham, performs, performs, performs surgery on himself in the most sensitive area of his body. He circumcises himself as a sign of the covenant relationship with him and God. You mean to tell me he not about that life? <laughs> My man said, yeet, gone. No anesthetic. Nobody to hold, like, no, nothing. My man's about that life. Don't get it twisted. Abraham's a man of faith. Yo, he's got an anchor. He has an anchor, bro. If that ain't an anchor, I ain't never seen an anchor, bro. I'm just letting you know. My man has got an anchor. He has got a sure and steadfast hope in something. Jeez, I ain't never had that kind of faith in my whole life. My man is about that life, okay? I need you to get that just from the very jump. I need you to know that about Abraham. I need you to know that. Later on, you need you to also know that he's willing to sacrifice his son of promise, the one that God promised him. Kill him. Bet. Say less. Three days. He got three days to think about it and still made it happen, bro. My man's about that life, okay? And watch this. This is what's so crazy. After these things, this is after he's promised him, this is after Lot is, is separated, after he saves him, after he fights his battle. It says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O oh Lord, 
What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And here's the key. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I want you to know this about Abraham, too. Abraham is old. I'm talking old. He's about 100 years old. He's old. He's way past the year of childbearing. Like, my man is, he's dried up. You know what I'm saying? He's dusty. Okay, he's old, old. His wife is old, old, too. It is not supposed to happen. This is biologically, like, an impossibility that he is, like, all right, God, like, I trust you to leave, and in a couple chapters, I'm going to trust you to, I trust you, okay? But this, man, this is an impossibility. I, I don't, I can't get past this. You've said to me in Genesis chapter 12 that you were going to give me this land. I don't know how you're going to do it. You said that you were going to give me sons. You're going to make me be mul- like a multiplicate, like as many as the stars in heaven, like a huge multitude coming from me, a nation from me. And not only that, but I'll be a blessing to the earth. I believe you. I left everything. I, I believe you. I, like, I'm with you. And in this moment, he's asking God, how is this even going to happen? And God in this moment is not telling Abraham, no, nah, bro, you just need to believe me, okay? God does something for him. And this is why this is significant and why you need to see this, because it's critical for you to understand Genesis, or, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Excuse me. It says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these and he cut them in half and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds came, of prey came down, the carcass says, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12 says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God, in this moment, he tells him what's going to happen. Hey, you're going to have these descendants and this is, descendants, and this is what's going to happen to them. But the, the ritual, the oath that we're talking about from Hebrews chapter 6 is this. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant, an oath with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And for the naked eye, you're like, that's a weird story. It's like just a weird story, okay? You cut in half some animals, and a pot and a torch walk through them. That's weird, right? And the thing about this is what we need to understand is that from where he came from, this means something. See, in his culture that he had just came out of, this is actually the only time this happens in Scripture. Like, this is the only other time. I believe there's, there's something similar in Isaiah, but this is the only time. It's a, it's a ritual. It's an oath that is indigenous to him. So God is communicating something to Abraham that he will understand about how this is going to happen. He cuts these animals in half, lays them on both sides. 
And in this custom, this, this ritual, this oath that they're making, this promise that both of these individuals are making to one another, they would, in anything, they would, hey, I'll sell you this piece of land in five years. And he's like, how do I know? All right, let's do this. Cuts them in half. In both individuals, they walk hand by, hold hands, and they walk in between. And what that symbolizes is if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, and if you don't hold your end of the bargain up, I will be like these animals cut in half. I will be dead. It's that serious. I'm I'm willing to die. Cross my heart, hope to die. That's what this is, okay? You understand? And I want you to notice something, and this is the most beautiful picture, and it's actually a, a picture of what the cross is, way before it ever happened. Instead of Abraham and God walking through it together, God is the only one that walks through. And this is significant because I need you to understand that God is communicating something so specific to Abraham in this moment. He's saying that even if you don't hold up your end of the deal, I'll pay for it. That you can bet the bank on me, even if you don't deserve it. And if that ain't the picture of Jesus, that Jesus himself, thousands of years after this, he goes and he dies on a cross because we were unable to hold up our end of the bargain. That we were unable to live up to the standard in which God had invited us and made us to live. And we rebelled against him and we did everything contrary to what he'd have for us. And he said, you know what, I'll take it. That even when you are faithless, I'm faithful. And I'll give my life because I'm down to hold both ends of the bargain up. I'm here to tell you today that is the same God who, and the reason why he's writing this to them is this. He says, the reason you can bet the bank on this promise is because I put my blood in it. I put my son on it. That... That this promise that I have for your life, this bedrock that you can put your anchor to, that no matter what happens in life, I've got you. And the reason you can trust it is because Jesus paid for you to be in that covenant relationship with him. I don't want to move past this because I think that Jesus, that we, like we believe that Jesus is just like, hey, I'm freely, yeah, do what you want to do. Come, you know, if you want to have a relationship with me. No, Jesus is like, I want you so bad I'm willing to die. It's over done even if you don't want me back the beauty of the gospel is this that while we were unable to live a life that was worthy of him he gave it for us as us taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could have life in him so that we can bet the bank on his promises because he's that good he's that good And he's telling these Jewish people who are abandoning him, hey, don't leave. I've died so that you can have a relationship with me that is not based on circumstances. It's not based on how good you are, but about how good I am. And that the promises of God that we can have our hope in, that the thing that anchors our life, the reason that we can be secure and steadfast in a world that is anything but is because God doesn't change his love for you doesn't change he doesn't love you more on your good days than he does on your bad days he doesn't like you more when you stop doing the thing you don't like that's stealing life from you he doesn't like you more he likes you just as much as one of your most terrible day ever he likes you 
Not like you. I mean you, you. Like you, me, you. God so loved the No, God loved you. You. Not your sister, not your mom, not your dad. You. Busted old crazy, busted and crusted you. He loved you. That's why you can bet the bank on him. That's why for us, man, we get so twisted, this, this faith in life with God that we are like, man, God, I want to hope in you, but like, I want to believe that you're going to do good things in my life. Like, I want to believe that, but like, I don't want to get my hopes up, right? Like, God, I know you're good. Like, I, like, I know you want good stuff for me, but like, I know that you can, like, I know that you can, you're God, but I just don't know, like, will you? And what I want to tell you in that, and that, that whole mindset, you know what that mindset is? It is hope and outcome, not hope in a person. It is, God, I'm down if I get the outcome I want. But what happens if the outcome that you want doesn't happen? Is he enough? Because here's the deal. He thought you were enough when you had nothing to bring to the table. He took it without anything from you. Anything. You're enough. I think that we get it twisted that, like, we died for Jesus. Nah, bro, Jesus died for you. Jesus is the one that went all in on this. He, he like, he bankrupt heaven and just said, here you go, free. What? And we mad, oh, God, you didn't give me the job I wanted. I wanted to be with that girl. Like, that's dumb, bro. I'm sorry, that's dumb. But we get upset and we get offended by God when he doesn't come through with the promises that we think that he's promised us. I think that for us, we need to get our mind set on a hope that is different than an outcome, but it's in a person. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, verse 18 and 19, so that the two unchangeable things, God's character and his word, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. If you're not Jewish, you don't know what this means. The temple, the way that it was set up, there was these courtyards, right? And what would happen is you come to the temple, you, you know, for a yearly sacrifice to cover the sins that you've committed. You come in, you present your sacrifice. That animal is cut. You get a picture of this in Jesus dying for us. That's why his blood covers our sin, atones our sin. Does that make sense? And it goes into the, another spot, a different place. And, and, and the closest place, the dead center of this temple complex is the, what they call the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It would be the place where the presence of God dwelled. And it's behind this curtain. And it was so holy that only the high priest could go in that spot once a year. And the beautiful thing about this whole passage is, is not only that, that we have this hope that enters into the presence of God, a place that we never would have been able to enter before Jesus which why it talks about him being the great high priest the, in the order of Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. 
that Jesus, this great and better high priest, has set up a completely different way of interacting and being with God where we don't have to go through other people, but we get to step into his presence and talk to him directly. That's a completely altogether different than any reality that they would have previously known. And the reason why this is so significant and why inside the inner curtain, the inside that place, the reason why it's so beautiful is because it's a place that can't be tampered with by human hands. And what I mean by that is that anchor is so steadfast and caught up in that place that you can't fall out of it. You can't sin your way out of it. You can't drift your way out of it. That God's the person holding on to it, not you. That's why it says that Jesus, the great high priest, he lives to intercede for us. That while Paul talks about in Timothy, he tells him, this is a trustworthy saying and you should remember it. That even while we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. That God is so good and so dead set on loving you that even when you've turned your back and you've drifted, he's not changed his position. He said, I'm not moving an inch from where I said I'd be. And I'm holding you even if you don't hold on to me. That that anchor is anchored to something that will never move. That you can't manipulate, people can't manipulate you out of it. You can't make God like you enough to hold you more. You can't make him dislike you enough for it to slip. It's in a place that Jesus himself is the one holding onto it, the forerunner who was on that side in the presence of God holding onto it for us. So my question tonight is, if he's holding onto you, will you hold back onto him? If we're going to be people who live a life that doesn't drift, we not only need an anchor, and not only does that anchor need to be anchored in a person rather than an outcome, but we also need to hold on to that anchor. You know, I was watching YouTube getting, you know, ready for how anchors work and looking at, well, let me see how it works at least. You know what I mean? Like, let me figure it out. And I'm watching these YouTube videos, and I saw more than anything other where the chains actually would break and that the anchors would just go flying. It's pretty crazy. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, man, if the anchor is good and the place it's anchored to is immovable, what good is it if there's not a chain to hold on to it? The anchor can be holding all day. It could be immovable all day. But if it's not connected to you, what good is it? If you're not holding on to it, what good is it? And that's what this author is getting at. He's talking about Abraham and how he held on in faith. And the, the encouragement is we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Hold on. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience. You know, I think for a lot of us, we're down for having an anchor and down for it to be in a place that we can't lose. But the moment that difficulty happens, we are quick to let go. 
And the reality is an anchor has to be held in those moments for it to dig deep into the place it's supposed to be. And that anchors are not designed to stop storms. They're designed for you to weather them. Does that make sense? I think a lot of us have a misconception and thought that maybe just because we have an anchor means that, oh, well, we don't have to face any difficulty. That we don't have to, like, face any waves or wind or something not going the way that we thought. What's the point of an anchor? The anchor's supposed to hold you. But if you can't hold it, what's the point? Through faith and patience. He also writes in chapter 10, he's writing to this group who's left, who's leaving. He's like, hey, man, this is not the outcome that I thought. I was down with Jesus. I was ready to, like, leave my life and and to do all that. But this isn't what I expected. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, this is the key. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Hold on. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. I love this, and this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It says, but we are not those who shrink back. But we are not those who let go. But we are not ones that drift. That we're sticking with him to the end and we're going to hold on. Because a life with him is way better than anything else. I'm telling you, I promise you, I've tasted it, I've tried it. It's not there. It's not there. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Patiently waited, patiently waited. Held in the storm. Held when it was hard. Held when it didn't make sense. Held when everything else told us to let go. Maybe it's easier to do this without him. Maybe it's easier to put my hope in something else that doesn't require anything of me. You know, know, everybody likes to quote Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Confidence in things not seen. You want to see your faith do something? Hold on when you can't see it. Believe when it's not there. Believe that God is still up to something and doing something in your life, even if the outcome that you prayed for didn't happen. Because I promise you, That if your hope is in the outcome and not in the person of Jesus, you will always be left feeling like you got tricked. Because the thing is, our hope isn't in this life. It's not in this one. It's in a future one. And guess what? We get to live in some of that right now. Some of the good, 
beautiful, amazing things that life has, has to offer is like right here, right now. But guess what? There is an eternal weight of glory waiting for those who have held on in faith, waiting for them. My encouragement to you tonight is I don't know where you're at with Jesus. I don't know where you're at with this whole idea of like happiness and being anchored to something. But I'm here to tell you that any life that's a happy one is anchored in God. I promise you. Because everything else will fail you. If you want God to do something for you to get an outcome, guess what? That'll fail too. But there is an outcome that's promised. And there are promises that God has spoken to you. But I think for us, a lot of us, we haven't spent near enough time even opening up this book to see what have you promised me? What are the things that are yes and amen in Christ? What are the promises of God in Christ Jesus that are yes and amen? What are those things that you've said are mine right now that I'm just acting like they're not even on the table? See, I believe we're going to be people who don't drift. We have to be people that have decided in our hearts that we are going to hold on to Jesus no matter what. No matter what waves come, no matter what winds blow against us, no matter how hard it gets, we're not moving. Because I promise you, it's that life that's a beautiful life, a meaningful life, a worthy life. I want to pray for you right now and just give you a moment just to kind of respond just to yourself. You might feel like you've been in a place where you've drifted. You've ended up somewhere that you never thought you'd be, whether that be some mistakes happened this year or maybe some stuff that you didn't even do but stuff that happened to you and it's, it's made you feel like happiness is a, a thing that's very far away from you. And I just want to pray right now that, that Jesus himself would meet you in that disappointment. He'd meet you in that place of drifting, that he'd meet you in the place that you're begging him to move. God, I pray that you would just touch every heart in this room, God. That you would give us the ability to have hope even when there's times where it feels like there is no hope. That we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls in Jesus, who is in your presence. That there's a tangible experiential reality with you that changes everything that marks our life. God, I pray that every person in this room would have an interaction and encounter with your spirit, God. That your presence would change them forever. God, I pray that you would breathe hope into people who feel like they have no hope. And that you would breathe life back into our tired bodies, God. We're tired. And we're trusting you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.